0: My name is Ted.
1: My name is Gray. And my name is Meg. And, and this is
0: Anamorphology.
1: Everworld Edition.
2: The invasion. The visitor. The encounter. The message. The predator. The capture. The stranger. The end. The, the secret. The end. The forgot. The reaction. The chain. The unknown. The escape. The, warning, the decision. The The departure. The, sim, the discovery. The proposed threat. The, belief, the conspiracy. The, soul, the separation, The deception. The suspicion. Sacrifice, the the nine,
0: inside the illusion. All right, are we ready to go Inside the Illusion?
2: Absolutely not.
0: This is number nine, book number nine, the beginning of the final four Everworld books.
2: And in a twist, not our traditional four narrators of Everworld books, because it is a setup book. Do we know who they drop out? And replaced with Senna? No. I mean, I'm kind of assuming we get another David, another Christopher, and then a Megamorph style everyone for the last book. Hmm.
0: It's either that or it's an April book and we don't get Jaleel again.
2: Yeah. I'm a little annoyed that the books we definitely get, or the people we definitely get three books from are David and Christopher. The worst ones. (laughs) Christopher is (laughs) supposed to be the most interesting, really fails to be that.
0: Well, so... This was a Senna book. How do you feel about adding Senna to the regular roster? Not that it will last that long. but
2: Oh, 100% in favor. She's the best narrator. Most interesting. I actually really liked this book.
1: I agree with Jenny on this one that the narration so far has been like presenting us a singular question and it's what's Senna's deal anyway? And they finally answered it. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'm on board with this. I like it. She definitely has way more of a point and
3: a plot than any of the other. We have had eight books so far with no overarching narrative of yeah. what the hell they're doing. And Senna comes in and she's like, here's my goal. It, it doesn't work in this book. But she has a plan.
2: Yeah. There are so many more interesting plot threads and questions and like potential future developments that come up in this book than in the other eight books combined. This book is so overdue. I didn't like Senna as a person, but I think she's a fascinating character.
1: You know, she's a psychopath. She's absolutely horrible. But, you know, every villain thinks they're the hero of their own story. La 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 la. Do you think that uh, Apple Grant planned to have a Senna book? Or were they like maybe writing the David book in this time period and being like, you know, we can't find all this stuff out about Senna externally. She wouldn't tell us. We got to go inside her head. Or do you think they're always like, we're definitely going to go inside Senna's head someday so we don't have to answer these questions in earlier books. We will definitely
2: cover that in her point of view later down the line. That's a good question.
0: I assume they improvised it.
2: I think they were always planning to do something with Senna's point of view because like the amount that they have planted keith for example who's like a big part of senna's plan like they have been planning they have known a lot of the content of this book already and just haven't brought it in and i don't think they were like let's try to bring it in with other people's books oh it's not really working i think they were kind of keeping this in reserve
0: that's fascinating i totally don't agree with that but before we i want to hear gray's overall take meg and jenny generally positive on this book Gray, you were interested in senna's character you said there's a plot now but you didn't enjoy it anymore?
3: I think this book is closer to how I feel about the Animorphs than any of the others. Which is to say, it's interesting. The characters, I, I'm i intrigued by the characters. There is a plot and like an, an overarching kind of goal that the char- main character has. And it falls short and kind of misses the mark in several key areas, many of which are probably due to it being written in the time in which it was written 20 years ago. And some of which are just perhaps blind spots that Apple Grant has that come through really strongly in this.
0: Mm. I think I see where you're going with this.
3: But I mean, in general, I do like it better than I have liked many of the others.
2: Yeah, I agree, Gray, that I don't think it's like a 100% great book. Definitely some things I would take issue with. But I think we should maybe talk about what happened in this book, which I just realized I'm supposed to tell you all. Darn it. I never remember.
0: It makes for great audio. (laughs) It sure does.
2: Oh, oh man. Okay. All right. So we're in Senna's point of view. It's a new narrator. Real exciting. She doesn't like anyone. Is really concerned about preserving her mystique. At the beginning of the book, before we join the gang in Everworld, we get a flashback of Senna when she is seven which is older than she was when April told it about when she joined April's family, but retconning, whatever. She's seven. Her mom is leaving and leaving her with her father, who she's never met before. And so we get to see this, like, seven-year-old be, like, distressed and confused. And then her mom, her mom is like, it's too dangerous for the two of us to be here together. I'm going to leave you with your father. He's a good man. And she, like, whammies Senna's dad to, like, take Senna in. And then she disappears, Uh, The mom disappears, and Senna grows up with his family. Uh, Fast forward, we're here in Everworld. Senna is with the gang. They're walking across the desert towards Egypt. They reach the Nile, and Senna, like, can sense magic. We learn that she can always do this, um, even in the real world. She can kind of see a glow of magic. And she's like, something's wrong with this river. It's, like, it's troubled, and... Jaleel is like, oh yeah, some plants are rotting. And so they go into the river to bathe. Senna gets captured by a bunch of crocodiles. Yes, captured, because they like close their teeth on her, but don't quite bite in. And then Sobek, the crocodile god, shows up and is like, how dare you? You're a witch in my river. You're polluting it. And Jaleel manages to make all like diplomatic and is like, please don't kill her. Oh, full title of the exalted crocodile god. That he is very insistent on them using and they're like negotiating maybe but then the Kuhats show up throw their blades kill the crocodiles uh holding senna like slice off their snouts and stuff and david pulls Senna out of the river and sobek is real mad and they're like wait wait sobek you said okay so there's a dam that's what the problem with the river that like it has been dammed downriver, and like you're cut off from the other gods okay well we'll destroy the dam for you. And Senna's like, yeah, we'll destroy the dam or you can eat us all. And everyone's like, great. So Sobek is like, you'd do that? Amazing. And conjures them up a boat full of people who I think are real people. And um, the boat sails them down the river and uh, David comes up with this whole plan to light the ship on fire and send it toward the dam. Before they do that, they investigate. uh, They find out that dwarves have built this dam because there is gold in the Nile, and the dwarves are, like, sluicing the water through channels to, like, get the gold or something. So Senna uses her, like, glamour powers to show up as this, like, beautiful woman draped with gold and is like, you dwarves, build me an altar and I'll send you better gold tomorrow. It's a little unclear why she does this. I think just because they heard her splashing and she didn't want to get killed because, like, they don't actually do anything with the altar or, like... The fa- or the promise. They just sail a boat that is lit on fire towards this wooden dam and burn it all. And it works really effectively. The dam burns. A lot of dwarves die. Dwarfs, sorry. A lot of dwarfs die. The dwarfs are very mad at them. And they're like, you will never, you should never go to the mountains. We'll always be against you. We'll remember. But the Egyptians that they pass as they sail down the river um, in a little dinghy are very happy. The Egyptians are like bringing them food and water and wine and everyone's very happy to see them. So they keep sailing down the river. Uh, Sobek is like following them. Sana knows but doesn't tell the others. And they see that the left bank of the river is all like people living their lives, and there are merchants and storehouses, and everything seems to be pretty robust and fine, except for maybe the fact that the Nile wasn't flowing. I don't know. They seem to be doing surprisingly well, considering the Nile wasn't flowing, but that's not important. The right bank of the river is all the temples, like huge, like glorious constructions, but it seems kind of dead. Like there are only like a few lines of like priests and priestesses going by, and it really is like... A little eerily deserted. So they're all like, well, we should go to the left bank. And Tana's like, no, my mother will be on the right bank. So they go to the right bank and they are greeted by a crowd of like priests. But the priests are being overseen by these three women in like awesome armor holding these like powerful bows. And they realize that the Amazons have taken over the right bank because the Egyptian religion seems to have completely stagnated, much like the Nile when the dam was built. They don't really draw that connection, but it seems like the Egyptian gods just got really caught up in ritual, and now they're like basically unmoving statues. They're asleep, sort of. Their acolytes are still very much ritually bound. They're still following all of the things they're supposed to do, but there are no gods exerting power here. And Senna's not sure what this means for like her mom, um, who's supposed to be serving ISIS, um, if ISIS is kind of gone. So they have been met by these Amazons. And the Amazons are like, all right, we're going to show you to our leader. And so they um, take them to Pretty Little Flower, is the queen of the Amazons. And yeah, Grace shaking her head, we're going to talk about that. She is in the middle of a concert, she is singing R-E-S-P-E-C-T, and Senna's like, okay, so my mom is here, (laughs) Uh, because she knows her mom was really into this music, and who the heck else has been bringing the music of 20th century America to the Amazons. So uh, Pretty Little Flower greets them and is like, oh, this one's a witch, and doesn't seem afraid, and it turns out it's because she has Senna's mom serving her. And so Senna encounters her mom face to face and she hasn't been sure how this would go. Like ends up being like kind of not what she expected. It's like really stilted and her mom isn't like really greeting her emotionally. And uh, she learns that her mom has become uh, like priestess of this like new religion of like these goddesses of rock and roll, basically of soul of like you know, these musical genres that she is a fan of and has been teaching to the Amazons as like sort of a, a woman empowerment goddess religion thing. And she's like, this is my chance, Senna. Don't blow this for me. And Senna's like, um, we need you to open this door for the Ku hatch. And her mom's like, no. And she also learns, like, she's like, why did you abandon me that sucked? And her mom's like, I wanted to give you a chance for a normal life. Like Tom is a good man. I'm sure you have your own car and stuff, right? And Senna's like, yeah, I didn't fit in. I hated it there. I was completely bored. It was awful. And her mom's like, yeah, well, it was really like hard for me. I was poor and I didn't have a job. And Senna realizes that like her mom was like kind of weak and afraid and that Senna was an inconvenience. And so she ends up feeling kind of worse about the whole thing uh, she goes back and joins the others and uh, Christopher gets taken to be the cuddle lamb of pretty little flower and the others come up with a plan because pretty little flower is very scared of the witches especially now that she knows that Senna is her mother's daughter do we even get her mom's name Annika Did- Annika right? yeah she learns that uh, that they're related and she's like okay they might team up against me so she has them really heavily guarded and they're all like, how can we get out of this? And uh, is like, Sobek, I bet he's still around. And Senna's like, how did he know? And they come up with a plan where Senna sneaks out, disguised as a rat, because she can shapeshift pretty easily in Everworld, and goes and tells Sobek, like, these Amazons have taken over. You have to take Egypt back and wake the other gods, unless you don't want to wake the other gods and you want to be the only god of Egypt. And Sobek is like drooling with desire for power. So she's like, okay, here's what you do. You have your crocodiles come and attack these Amazons. There are only like 30 of them. You can do this. So she's like, great, this is going according to plan. And then she turns around and realizes her mom is there. And her mom's like, I'm so sorry, Senna. I had to do it. And Senna feels a new power and realizes that Merlin is there. Her mom called Merlin to take Senna away. So her mom's really afraid that if anyone finds out that Senna's there. They might find out about her. And then Loki might notice her as well as Senna because she's been like hiding in Everworld from these gods who might want to use her. So Merlin is there and he's way more powerful than Senna. Senna like can't escape. But then Christopher comes by and she's like, Christopher, kill my mother. And she like, uses her power to make Christopher jerk and then Merlin starts controlling him and Senna then gets free far enough to shout for the Amazons to come because Merlin is trying to kill Christopher and um he also she also accuses him of raping her and um the Amazons all come and Merlin ends up being like overpowered because there are too many people he's trying to control Senna manages to um break away runs into a temple and travels back to the real world, uh, which she did want at one point earlier in the book, it was like when they were on the boat or something. And it turns out that she has been gathering followers, she's been starting a cult, she's been appearing as like the head and shoulders of a man, and like showing miraculous things to these like 20 ish followers, who she's been telling um, to gather arms and like you know arm themselves and be ready to invade this new world and conquer it and this is really exhausting for her it's like definitely pushing the limits of her power so she goes back to the real world and approaches her most like militantly minded follower who is keith the nazi that we've met before She's like, Keith, I need you now. I want everything that you have in your footlocker. Just, like, take all your weapons and come with me. He's like, oh, okay. And so he comes back to to Everworld with her and is really shocked when she looks like a thin, like, teenage girl in Everworld. But she's like, um, that dragon, you need to kill the dragon. So he uses his machine gun to shoot Merlin's dragon and just blow his head off. And then he's, like, really excited because that was, like, the most fun thing he's ever done. And he gets really into the slaughter. And she's, like, wow, this guy whose mind I had glimpsed, who I knew was, like, just all about the killing and hatred, is all about the killing and hatred. Oh, no! Who Who could have foreseen? (laughs) Totally unforeseen problem. So he's, like, blowing up, like, shooting up this temple. And she runs away. She's, like, he's going to shoot me, too and uh, joins up with the others and her mom's not there and or so it seems um, it turns out her mom is disguised as Jaleel and is like pleading with her for forgiveness and Senna sees through her and is like um no I will not forgive you for this but if you go and become a doorway for the coup hatch I will not come after you and she's like wow I should feel awesome that I just bested my mother but I don't I feel all empty and and that is the end there's there's nothing else that happens we don't find out what happens with Keith they're still in Egypt but uh Sobek has successfully taken over I I forgot to put that in the chaos after you know Merlin was doing his thing uh Sobek took over killed pretty little flower and so the Amazons have kind of like their ranks have broken they're running and, uh, the gang is still in Egypt, but they're going to be out by, like, midday the next day, and, uh, yeah, they've accomplished their thing for the coup Hatch, so we'll see what happens next.
1: The end. The Cuckoo Cachoo Hatch. Good summary.
0: Um, yeah, great summary. And yeah, reminds me, there was actually a plot in this book, and <laughs> yeah. one thing followed from another, and there were multiple factions with different interests. Well, there was and so, there's a
2: plot that, like, so is much better. going to yeah. affect things going forwards, and, yeah.
1: Our narrator had a goal, and the purpose of each <laughs> scene was bringing her either closer or farther from her goal. Yeah, It was interesting. There were stakes.
0: Okay, not to start on a downer note, though, but I'm not sure this occurred to me while reading it, but why does Senna want to invade Everworld?
3: No, she doesn't. She wants to take over Everworld. Her yeah, goal is to be power. the ultimate queen of Everworld and all the gods to, like, follow her.
0: No, right, but... But why? She planned to bring these four through with Loki in the first book. Mm -hmm. And she's been this whole time trying to amass power for herself. Yes. But like...
2: Are you asking why she wants power?
0: Yeah. Or like, not why she wants power, because I guess that's she's kind of like monomaniacal. She wants
2: power, yeah. Right.
0: But like, why not be a witch who rules Everworld? Like, until she went to Everworld, she didn't know how like awesome magic was so like how much of this plan has she developed since coming to Everworld and how much was like, I'm, you know, I'm going straight to the top Mm. and this is the first Rube Goldberg thing that I'm doing.
1: I think a huge amount of her self-worth and how she like emotionally survived being dropped off in this family is she set herself apart because of her magic and a lot of her pride and inherent like self-narcissism revolves around how well i'm magic and i'm special and then once she finds out that there are other magic people that changes to i am the most special of everyone who's magical and that's just like a tiny hop skip and a jump away to i should be over everyone that's magical so that's how i read it
2: i am really curious about like I feel like her, like she maybe was happy in some way to be taken by Loki, but that wasn't like part of a plan she was doing. Like that was he was taking her against her will, and she was like, "Okay, but this is great. Now I'm in this world full of magic." I do wonder.
0: She's been kind of developing it. uh, Yeah. 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 So like the seeds were there, but it's been growing like crazy since she arrived in Everworld.
1: Yeah, and she's also.
3: Develop the plan as she learns more things. So, like, as she learned about mm-hmm. Catenor, but also as she discovered that April's CD player works, and that gives right. her the idea that, like, technology exactly. brought across in this direction might still work. So, if I bring guns,
0: that Merlin, Merlin is so much more powerful than her, so she doesn't stand a chance. Right. Mm-hmm. So she needs. Okay,
1: yeah. we actually called a funny joke version of Senna's plan back in, I can't remember if it was episode two or three, um, but we were saying, she needs a champion. Why is she just picking four random high schoolers?
0: (laughs) And so in our
1: version, we're like, she should be bringing celebrities. She should be bringing Michael Jordan. Mm -hmm. But no, she actually is having a second, stronger group of her champions uh, preparing to come in and destroy Everworld and conquer it for her.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. I definitely want to talk about the connections between her and Ava. Or not Ava, sorry. Um, what is Edris? Edris. Yeah, the connections between her and Edris, Visser One in Animorphs, because uh she's starting the sharing <laughs> and I there seems to be a similarity <laughs> in like I don't know, they, they have very different, like, it's not like Edris has a backstory of like neglect and needing to wall off her emotions. She just seems to be a terrible person. And um, Senna does have like more of a traceable like, okay, I can see why she's closed down to emotions in this way. But both of them, with a few exceptions with for Edris's kids that she seems to like be very attached to, like both of them have this very callous view of the world and how they can use people in it.
0: But where's Senna's soft side? I think she's a Viscera 3 type.
2: I don't know. I mean, I feel like her soft side is what she's working so hard to protect. Like, okay, so every adult in this story is awful. I hated all of them.
0: True. Mostly, I mean, April's parents and um, Senna's mom. mom. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, the Amazons weren't that great either. But yes, mostly all of the parents in this story Mm -hmm. are absolutely awful. And like... Like, Senna shows up, this seven-year-old, and her dad refuses to take her at first because it's going to be inconvenient for him. And, like, you can see why, but, like, come on, dude, care about this child. Why are you not already paying her child support? Like, well, I mean, he didn't know about her, which does not excuse,
3: you know, I see that, like, if you suddenly find out that you had a kid and you didn't know about it, like, all right, maybe you don't react great the first time. I'm willing to accept that her upbringing was not great, starting when she, you know, she's a reluctant member of this family, her mother has abandoned her, that's all very bad. And we don't get a great sense of her life with her mother before that point. Like, there's a little bit of a flash of, like, they spent a lot of time together, it was just the two of them, her mom's kind of bohemian, doesn't really seem like she went to school, she didn't really have any friends, but, like, she... There was this sort of life that her mother had created, for good or for bad. She shows up at this, these people's home and is immediately, her decision is, I'm going to be awful to them. For, and listen, like, I'm not saying that the grownups reacted, give it, I don't give a shit about that. But like, April comes down the stairs in the middle of the night, she's a seven-year-old girl, her mother says, take this kid and put her in the guest room. And Senna's reaction to all of that is to be like how can I make her life as miserable as possible. That is not coming from a trauma response because she has not had enough time for that to be a thing. Like you can't it, 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 I think the book in some ways was trying to be like she had a really shitty time of it and that's why she's an asshole. No, no, no. No, no. She was an asshole and she had a shitty time. And both of those things can be true.
1: You don't get to be an like you wait, know like wait, she wait, already needs I have something to say about this, because she is seven years old and a child. I think what it is, I mean, she's just had well, you said, maybe not a traumatic uh, time of it already, but a pretty like horrible experience of my mom has given me up to someone who doesn't want me. So she's gotten like two pretty strong rejections in a very small amount of time. Mm
0: -hmm. And I see
1: it as a little kid lashing out to be like, okay, well, no one can reject me. If I reject them first.
3: Yeah, that's fair.
2: And I think the first sign that we see of her being sort of Machiavellian or like scheming in this way about other people's emotions is she realizes in the car with her dad, she's like, I'm afraid and like, oh, he's afraid too. Oh, if he's afraid too, that means he's not more powerful than me. Well, I'm going to decide not to be afraid and that will make me more powerful than him. And like. Yeah, like, I feel like you do have to have a certain mindset to, like, be able to think that way at seven. But also, I can also completely, like Meg was saying, I can see how that would be a protective response of, like, this man with me doesn't want me. I have no, like, I'm completely alone in the world. Yeah. It's It's
1: sad because she's seven. And... We do see that April's parents treat her differently than April. Not cruelly, but I mean, like, April's clearly the favorite. Yeah. So while it's sad that this happened at seven, I feel that if the parents had been a little more invested, helpful, like, I don't know, maybe take some classes on what it takes to raise a foster child, (laughs) that Senna wouldn't still be this way at 17. That's a really good point.
3: And I'm not trying to blame her for the actions of the adults in her life, but for her own actions. Mostly, like, there's a scene where she realizes she can shapeshift because she's listening to the mom oh, yeah. read April a copy of The Hobbit. And she's like, oh, I'm just like Gollum. Like, I really connect with this character. Fair enough. That's a really tough thing for a kid to realize. You know, poor Senna. Her reaction to that is, oh, look, I can change myself physically so I look like Gollum. What I will do with this knowledge is go into April's room, wake her up in the middle of the night, and give her the screaming night terrors. And then, you know, all right, they stopped reading The Hobbit. Maybe I'll go back and be the Red Queen and, like, pretend to behead her in her sleep. It's like, okay, well, that's not a great reaction.
1: No, but you know what? I have total sympathy for it. I have have an anecdote. The year is 2004, and my youngest sister is watching The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers on DVD for the first time, and she's terrified of Gollum. And I'm a big sister, so I know exactly what to do with this, (laughs) is I wait till after she's gone to bed, and it's, you know, lights out, everything's dark in the house, and I slowly push open her creaky door and go... and she just flipped out so sisters do that it's not inherently a a bad thing thing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) so i mean i think that's a great anecdote for illustrating that kids are sometimes just really mean to each other and it's just a kid thing but like i i feel like the thing where it's like the parents weren't cruel no they were cruel to her like they were not overtly cruel but like they, this whole thing, I have absolutely no sympathy for this mother. She is a grown adult, so yeah. she found out that her husband cheated on her. You do not take that out on the seven year old who just no. landed in your lap. And, father, I know you feel guilty. You don't take it out. Like, you show some, I have like, no love sympathy and, for like, the parents.
3: To be clear, I have yeah. a lot of sympathy for April, zero for the yeah. parents.
2: But, yeah. like, I completely understand how she would want to lash out at this girl who's getting everything that she does not get, this, mm-hmm. like, love from the parents. And, like, I do think it's it's always a difficult question of, like, many people who are victimizers are also victims, and you can feel bad for them and blame them for their actions. I mean, not super yeah. inclined to blame child Senna for, like, too much, but, like, at this point... I mean, she's 17. She's only legally a child. She, like, has a significant, a significantly higher mental capacity for realizing the consequences of her actions. mm -hmm. And, like, like at this point, you can't be like, well, she had a bad childhood. It's all fine. But you can say, oh, she had a bad childhood. Wow, I can see why she's like this, even if it Mm -hmm. doesn't make any of it okay. Yeah, I
1: think what we're trying to say is we can explain Senna's actions without excusing them. Mm -hmm. um also was it a mistake that april said we were four or does senna look really small for her age are (laughs) our high schoolers like has she just pretended to be april's age is she
2: really three years older
1: than everyone else did she put a whammy on them so they
3: remembered her being there for longer
2: that would be so hard to do because you would start you would start looking like an adult like You'd be like, wow, this nine-year-old starting to develop like into a woman. It'd it's be like so Jake weird. Jake and Marco
0: being in diapers in third grade. You know, like it's. <laughs> Wait,
2: what was that? A thing? There's
0: something like we've been friends since we were diapers, and we've been friends since third grade, like <laughs> in different books.
1: Uh, that happened in the Monsters Incorporated movie universe in the first movie. Mike says you've been jealous of my good looks since the third grade, and then the sequel slash prequel shows them not meeting until college and <laughs> someone asked the director about it in an interview and he's like, do you know what? That's just a saying they have in the monster world since the third grade. That's just a phrase everybody
2: uses. Great. That's,
0: that's, perfect. that's, that's so that's good.
2: Response. So much admiration for that response.
0: So I want to say a little bit about my feelings on Senna. I think she's a cartoon. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm really interested in the taking it as like a psychologically real person but to me and I made the comparison to Viscera 3 earlier she's just such a monomaniacal villain everything she does is to accumulate power she doesn't trust anyone and she also doesn't seem to have much of an emotional understanding of the people around her I just want to read the bit where she is humiliated because she is being, a, she's about to be torn apart by crocodiles. She's afraid for her life. She's completely naked on display in front of the rest of the group. Um, but she looks at her, you know, companions running up the riverbank towards her. And she's like, they laughed, though they hid it behind masks of shock and horror, right? Like that's who Santa is. She's <laughs> like, I don't think that. I don't think that. That's like in a moment of weakness, Senna's, like, being her worst self, I think that she she can understand that despite the fact that people know she's bad news, they don't want her to be eaten by crocodiles, <laughs> right? Like, and there's, like, multiple times where she, just the way she thinks about things, like, the way that she's cruel to her mother at the end, like, I really just don't see the, like, central bone of humanity in this character. I think that she's, I think that she's just meant to be a villain and, like, I'll be super interested if she gets a little bit of a redemption arc in the next three books. But, oh, yeah. I, like, I loved reading her. I loved having a narrator who is so clearly a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and contrasted with Christopher, who, like, is completely awful, has no interiority about it, and is not self-aware. Like, Senna, at least, is, like, you know, cackling on the inside, right? Yes, yeah, actually,
2: enough. it's a much better bad guy voice than we got for Visser 3 in Perfidure Chronicles. It was a completely unconvincing, like, this guy's going to turn into Visser 3. But I do think, I don't think she's going to be redeemed, but I do think she's more psychologically interesting than a cartoon. Like, the stuff where, like, you know, April will show her a little bit of sympathy and her reaction is like, oh, gotta be really cruel right now to shut that down because she can't take it. Like, I think that there is a core of humanity in, like, there is vulnerability of her emotions that she's working really hard to protect. I don't think she is going to be redeemed.
1: I don't I don't think so either. I think her choices are going to destroy her in
2: the end.
0: Okay, but I just... The April thing? Like, maybe. But how can you explain how much she hates Jaleel? Right? Like... Racism. What she does to Jaleel Probably. in this book? <laughs> no, okay. I'm
2: like, I <laughs> actually don't think it's very. Right. I mean, great, I'm sure racism's great. involved,
0: but... Not a great way to phrase that question. But I mean, like... The April thing is the least of the concerns when it comes to setups. Like
2: mm-hmm. Oh, I'm not saying that she's not a terrible person, but I'm <laughs> saying she has human emotions. Like that mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. a part of her. And it's because of her human emotions that she is so terrible. Like yeah. and well, the Jaleel thing is he's, she sees him as a threat. I think she's constantly maneuvering for herself because she's never had anyone on her side. She like, this whole thing is like a the like the tragedy of that comes with lack of any community at all. Like
0: yeah, that's interesting. I, I wanna walk back sorry, I wanna walk back the thing about she's a total cartoon character. I do think that she is interesting. The like it's interesting to see how she reacts to stuff that happens to her. In particular, I thought it was very effective that her mom was an anti-climax. Senna's mm-hmm. expecting a rival, a mentor, you know, like a frenemy, and what she gets is this revelation that like Senna's even more like I guess at least a kindred spirit, and to your point, Jenny. Senna's mom isn't just an older version of Senna, like, who cut Senna out of her life because it was inconvenient. She cut her out of her life because she couldn't handle it. And so that's, like, that's such an anticlimax to Senna Mm -hmm. that it's like a great foil for her kind of, like, I don't know, monomaniacal tendencies.
1: The stuff with Jaleel is actually really interesting to me because back in Book 3, when we had met everyone, I think, except Jaleel... We were trying to theorize why Senna would have brought him. Mm -hmm. And we said that it's perhaps he has a connection to Everworld outside of what Senna has. I was really interested that she was, she brought him because she thought she would have power over him because of his obsessive compulsive disorder. And to her surprise, he didn't have it in Everworld. And now we didn't get an explanation for that. But do you think we're going to get an explanation for that? I would like to see it. Or is it just...
0: I think yes. Probably
1: not. What a I don't lucky think coincidence.
0: I think we haven't had the slow falling and boats from the first oh, book explained.
1: Oh, okay. Good point. Oh, she saw someone. She mentioned... Like someone in the
0: The void. watcher in yeah. the yeah. void. Yeah.
1: The R. Elemist style character mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that Christopher also passed. And isn't there a bit of a time difference between when you leave Everworld and when you wake up back home and vice versa? Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: Is
1: it possible that our kids are interacting and talking with the Watcher in between (laughs) and they just currently don't remember it? And there will be a point in the story where we get to remember our crossover between times. It'll be like the final power up we all need as we go into the final battle. I just want you to all know.
3: That is going to be all of my Elemist rants from the Animorphs rolled up into <laughs> one Everworld rant, if that's what happens with the Watcher in the Void.
2: I mean, I think also if they're talking to the Watcher in the Void, they're probably talking to it in Z Space. So <laughs> Gray walks out of the podcast. She's never I'm seen out. again.
0: <laughs> that's actually I love that idea, but yeah. Apple Grant would never be able to keep track of they all of those, those times.
2: No, I don't think it's I I do. I do think I take back the thing where we're not going to get it explained. I think that Senna's theory that there's someone who is protecting Jaleel could actually be true. I think you're right, Ted, because the falling hasn't been
0: explained. And Senna's overwrought chess metaphor, another great like (laughs) this is how she thinks and sees herself as a cool villain. But it's actually kind of pathetic where she's like, am I just a pawn? On someone else's chessboard.
1: But hey, (laughs) Senna, if you make it all the way to the other side, you get a power-up, so...
0: Mm -hmm.
3: But that's why she can't let David survive, because he is her pawn. But if he makes it across, he'll become a queen. He wouldn't like that word, but it's true.
0: (laughs) Shut up. So Senna is also... Like, the Senna-Jaleel thing, she talks about how Jaleel is hard for her to control, but also he's the most useful because he wants to understand the why behind Everworld, um, and that that will be useful to her. And, like, this is, again, I totally wrote this off in the first book that we would never get any kind of, like, metaphysics stuff. But, like, it, Jaleel's been really interested in it. It's coming up in the Senate book. Are we going to get, like, some kind of explanation of what gods are or where they come from? Like, is that what they're promising here? Because that that's interesting. But...
3: Well, I really like the ways that she thinks about them because they are so banana do you know what this reminded me of so she goes off on this thing about like what exactly are the gods and what it reminded me of was the very first episode episode zero of anamorphology when i suggested (laughs) all of the things animorphs could be and was Uh just thoroughly wrong like i was throwing darts at a dartboard but i was throwing them in the opposite direction like did not know there were aliens right That is, to me, her suggestions are like that, where she's like, what were the gods? Are they a distinct race? Some offshoot of Homo sapiens? Some species of aliens? What exactly were they? What are you talking- They're gods!
2: (laughs) What? What? I like how she wants to figure out what is underpinning this so that she can, like, make use of it. It's really entertaining, especially because- Jaleel she's like Jaleel will figure it out he's really interested to find out and I was like we've had eight books has he done anything except sometimes be like weird that it works this way
1: (laughs) uh no instead he's like it shouldn't work that way that's annoying (laughs) (laughs) okay I'm gonna put out a 90s hypothesis Everworld is a simulation a la the (gasps) Matrix Whoa. The Watcher, in between, wrote the original programming of the gods and then just sort of set the world to run, but then brought in actual people to populate it because you need the creativity slash spark of human interaction to bring a Wait. random element to keep your simulation running.
0: What Brilliant, if, Meg.
1: you
2: know when we've seen simulations like this? Oh no. The holodeck? In Star Trek, no. In the Elements Chronicles. Chronicles, the Elementist is a gamer. They set up worlds, they set conditions, and then set them to run. And I maybe swear to into... Jesus,
1: if the Watcher <laughs> in the Void is the Elementist,
2: I think the Watcher in the Void could be Jesus. I'm going to lose my.
1: <laughs> I think the Watcher in the Void is bored with his current simulation that he/she they were running, which is just normal old Earth. And was like, these humans come up with the wildest shit. I am going to build a second simulation with some of these cool story ideas that they've come up with.
2: Love it.
3: So you're telling me it's Earth 2.0 and the answer at the end of the day is going to be 42?
2: Yeah,
1: probably.
0: <laughs> but we only have 12 books. Book 42 would have explained so it all. But... That just brought back to me. I, I, I haven't reread these books as an adult, but I... Um, like around the time that Everworld was coming out, I really liked the Otherland books by Tad Williams.
3: Mm-hmm. Any of you read
0: those? I've read them. It's exactly the premise Meg described, where it's oh. like, it follows a bunch of people, not about gods, but a bunch of people in these kind of like weird fantasy worlds. But what they are is they're, it's basically like a primitive, you know, MMO type thing. And people are like in kind of like full body tanks in the real world. But then they mm-hmm. the virtual world is this like, patchwork quilt where there's like here's the world war one simulator and here's the alice in wonderland inspired place and like all this other stuff
1: Hmm. because apple grant they're not fantasy writers they're science fiction writers Mm -hmm. and i think we Mm -hmm. should be thinking more of sci-fi tropes and solutions instead of our uh epic fantasy tropes and solutions that i think you're giving me
0: hope i don't want this
1: (laughs) don't have hope it has forsaken these lands
2: I was very intrigued. We were complaining about this cast of characters so much in the first few books. I mean, we still do. Uh, but in this book, it becomes clear that like, the fact that they don't cohere as a group is actually something that Senna intended. She chose Christopher cause she is like, he's gonna alienate the others and keep the group from like bonding. She picked Christopher cause he's awful on purpose. <laughs> She's also like, but he's really maturing, and I think he and Jalil are becoming friends. And I was like, "No, Where are you getting this? That's you want that to be happening." I'm authors, sorry. Unfortunately, but no.
0: No. Well, you said authors, <laughs> not Sena. Yes. Yeah.
2: They went to Taco Bell together. Only I'm friends do that.
0: That's another (laughs) informed friendship. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. We have not really seen real maturity from Christopher, and we have not seen a friendship there. I don't even know. What
1: was the line where it was a couple books ago where someone was like, Man, I don't get Christopher. I think it was Jalil. He's like, I don't get Christopher. Sometimes he's terrible, and then sometimes he feels like my best friend. And it's like, never has you, he ever
2: that?
1: <laughs> been even the slightest bit nicer kind to you. You're just being told by the narrators that his jokes are funny. <laughs> They're lying to you. And we're told again by Senna. She describes each of the four and what role they play and
3: why she wants them there. And Christopher is... The thing about he's an irritant, he's going to make sure the group never coalesces. A lightweight bigot. Lightweight is
2: doing a lot of
3: work (laughs) in that sentence. And then she says, I had chosen David to play the soldier, Christopher to play the clown, April to play the peacemaker, and I had chosen Jaleel to be the scientist. Okay, so the four genders,
1: obviously.
2: (laughs) The four houses.
1: That is a classic Star Trek away mission team. (laughs) So who's the red shirt? Christopher, the clown.
2: I feel like Christopher is, like, a bad role player who keeps making terrible jokes, but then he rolls a 20 on his charisma check, and everyone's like, wow, that joke was amazing! And and there's never any actual funny joke said.
3: That is a very good point, point. I hate it.
0: So, one thing about this, like, like the sort of reveal that it was all intentional, I want to pitch to you guys another Everworld what-if, which is we get the the first cycle of books as as normal maybe maybe it goes something you know like i don't know we can skip like the hell stuff and maybe the aztecs you know like we could compress it so that you at least get to greece by book four mm-hmm. like do something like that and then book five is senna but unlike as written where senna is obviously bad news from like book two on right like maybe oh, i yeah. think there was there was some ambiguity in a good guy bad or not. news but she's, she's clearly evil, like, as presented in the book. Uh-huh. No one is convinced by her. But imagine if all these kids were having trouble getting along, and, like, Senna's mysterious, but she's not transparently evil, mm. and she's like, no, you guys have to help me. We'll get out of this together. Rather than just being awful to you and kind of, like, cocky all the time, she's, like, leading them on, like, we just have to get to my mother, then that'll be enough power to get home. I can't do it myself, even though they say that I can. You know, like, if she just had a little more nuance, and then in book five we find out she is like this, that would be such a good really cool. twist. It'd be like, yeah. oh, Senna, she seemed like, okay, but like, a little a little troubled. Actually, she's been this evil manipulator the whole time. That would have been amazing.
2: That would have been great. a Agreed. Yeah, if she were a successful manipulator instead of just like an ice queen, right. with her, of course, then it might have been too confusing to have both her and April as potentially nice people, and they're both women.
0: They're like the same person. It's okay. We can now blame April's mother for creating that <laughs> Madonna horror <laughs> dynamic between uh. her daughters. There was there was some line where Senna talks about that. The,
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, Man, I want to jump on your what if. And because, you know, you're right, we can't have two women who are nice. What if we had cast April as the initial villain?
2: Mm, That,
1: you know, like a bit of a star of the school play, mean girls kind of character. (sighs) And David doesn't know why she's just so mean and why she's like freezing them out. Mm -hmm. I still would have liked a more complex past between the kids and the other kids. And so... It could have been a, a level of interest for a YA book if April and Christopher had a real like rough past between them. I love this. Whether that's like a bad breakup yeah. or like we were childhood kids and then he yeah, we fought that sort of stuff.
0: Like Sen is one of the boys, but it's because she can just control them.
1: Oh
2: yeah, right.
1: And I also would love it if April was nice to everyone in Everworld, but still mean to them at high school. <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah. That would be fine. Yeah. Because she has, like, you know, she's, like, sort of a Cordelia type.
1: Because the the Animorphs are all very careful to keep their teamwork and their school lives separate. Even though Mm -hmm. there are plausible reasons that over the course of the three years, they could eventually all be sitting together at lunch. Because there's, Mm -hmm. you know, six Andalites and and four humans going to school. (laughs) But, yeah, I just... I think there's a lot about these books that we wish were different. I know.
2: Well, the great thing about what you just outlined, Meg, as a possibility is that it allows for growth in the characters in ways that would like change their position in the group, maybe. And like, right now, I don't feel like we have any, I'm not that interested in what any of these characters become. Like, mm-hmm. very briefly in this book, Senna was like, I can't like bother Jaleel here in Everworld, but I can still get to him in the real world. I was like... What if she starts a campaign of terror against him, like using his OCD, and it drives him to a breaking point where he admits what is bothering him and gets help? I would be so excited to see that. And then it didn't seem like that was where it was going. No. Like, not that she would attend him to get help, but like, I was like, that yeah. would be a really interesting development. And that's maybe one of the first times I've been interested to see a development in one of these kids.
1: So you just said something about their roles. Their roles haven't changed since they've come to Everworld, except for sometimes April gets temporarily put in control because none of the (laughs) magical sex witches can whammy her. And David is the leader, no question. And that's just how it's going to be, except sometimes temporarily when April steps in. And wouldn't it have been a great what if, if we all come in with the roles that Senna has assigned to us and end Mm -hmm. up growing and changing... That like now April is the leader and Christopher gets his act together and becomes the peacemaker. And that Jaleel's modern sciences aren't of much use, but David's excessive knowledge of history, tactics, and technology of the time makes David technically their ever world scientist.
0: Hmm.
1: What would that leave right. for Jaleel? So yeah. good. He Such would good believe concept. in
2: magic. <laughs> and the sad thing is that like, I don't even think Characters have to change out of the role that they have at the beginning to be interesting. Like I think the animorphs were really interesting characters without mm-hmm. ever doing that. Mm-hmm. But these two characters just aren't well written. It's they don't their roles that they're trying to be forced into like don't really work for them. It's just and, not. And really in working. this
0: book, it's a Senna solo piece, and I don't miss the other characters. Oh yeah, right. like yeah. they're kind of yeah. like dressing on the yeah. wall What
2: a great point.
0: David has a cool tactical moment. Christopher starts talking
2: and I'm like, oh, wow, I can see why Senna finds him so annoying. Like, How awful having to deal with him. All right. Time for another real world what
1: if question. Do you think the writing of these books was hurt by the audience expectations or publisher's expectations for a second Animorphs? Which, as you said, clearly defines everyone's roles at the beginning and keep our characters... Group dynamics pretty consistent most of the way through until Cassie's character got assassinated.
2: I don't think so. I think the these books were hurt by the complete lack of a clear premise from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I think that having roles for the characters is like often a good way to approach a cast of characters. I don't think that that is what hampered them. It's possible they were trying to contrast to create a contrast with the Animorphs group, and that hurt them.
0: I think that it was exactly what you just said. And the thing that led them astray was what if instead of sci-fi, we did fantasy. What if instead of middle grade, we did YA Mm -hmm. and then all of their like choices to change it up. Like the characters hate each other and they're really racist and sexist sometimes. And there's lore, right? Like Animorphs has a little bit of lore, but it's mostly like explained in the first chapter of every book. This is Mm -hmm. like, there are mysteries, right? There. Yeah. It turns out they're not that good at pulling this stuff off.
2: <laughs> the mystery box thing. That's um, so much their so, strength.
0: We'll so, see. slightly awkward transition, but um, let's talk about something that Apple Grant is very consistent in, which is... Aliens. Um, a, no, <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get there. A really, really problematic understanding of the mentally ill. Thank you. Um, oh my gosh. I'll, I'll say a little yep. bit and tee it up for you, Gray, because I, I know that you're...
1: Uh,
0: mad about it? Mad about it. Uh, so... Again, this was the other thing that's like, when Senna does this, it's unredeemable. She's basically, she's basically worse than any given Yerk, because the way that her magic apparently works is she has a like detector that lets her read people's minds in the real world, and she can find people who are quote-unquote crazy enough that mm-hmm. they're not as tied to reality in like a metaphysical way and that means that she can possess them and control them like yerks do with their hosts and just all of the you know all the language that she uses to describe the minds of these people and just the kind of like the big picture assumption that this is a category of people that exist and that their main defining trait is that they are listening to voices in their heads and believe in gods you know egyptian gods or whatever like it sucks. It's very, like, the oatmeal book and Animorphs and a mm-hmm. bunch of the other, I don't know. It's an Apple Grant blind spot for sure.
3: Yeah, and it it sucks. I mean, the, the... As Ted described, you know, what she does is she finds somebody whose mind is vulnerable to her and then takes them over. And where she looks for those people are homeless shelters in the Chicago area. And her introduction when she enters the brain of this man is to say, I'm with the CIA and I'm taking over your mind. And there, and then makes him, by, by possessing him, makes him go stand outside of Jaleel's home at his home until the police come to take him away. And there are a couple of other things that happen in the process of that. One, she describes a homeless shelter and a halfway house as being the same. And full of people with the same level of mental illness. And that those people, because they are crazies, please see my air quotes, that is what she says, that they are therefore not just vulnerable, but she is within her rights to briefly take them over and use them for her own purposes. And her purposes in this particular case, as Ted mentioned, are to scare Jaleel by showing him, according to her, a picture of his future as a crazy. Again, her words. She says, I liked the crazies. I had liked Jaleel for his craziness. There's also, a, there's just a lot going on in one very short scene where Apple Grant manages to, for example, confuse the level of mental illness that is OCD, schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, Addiction, which is its own separate thing, and not only does do all of those different aspects of mental health fall under the umbrella of craziness, the approach seems to be that medical science is not equipped to handle them. They talk about, she says something about a ha- just a handful of pills. I already took my pills, you can't, I'm not crazy anymore, I took my pills. Pills are are gonna, somehow there's like some weird aspect of this where like, she calls it the dark magic of science is like the equivalent to her kind of magic, which is like, it's, it's up. And there's also a whole thing about addiction that runs through this series in kind of a weird way. And in this book, it's Senna talking about alcoholism, and kind of pushing Christopher to follow the, his perhaps addictive temperament to become more towards being an alcoholic. Like she she tries to like mind whammy him to drink more even when he doesn't want to. He call, She calls him an alcoholic. It's one of the first things she says about him. There's like a whole thing in the middle where he's drinking too much and she's pushing him to do it. And then there's this bit about the halfway house is the same as the homeless shelter and everybody in all of those places equally crazy. And I can push Jaleel to going so far into his obsessive compulsive disorder that he thinks of himself as a schizophrenic homeless man standing on his yard yelling. And that is all as a whole, so uncompassionate and f-ed up. I, I don't understand why it's in there. It just, it doesn't, I don't understand it. I don't understand how they can have such an empathetic approach to so many things. And then they hit a wall when it comes to homelessness, addiction problems, and mental health. And that they can just be like, all of that, those are not people. And I don't have to treat them with empathy. And I just, it takes me aback every time. And this one was just particularly particularly bad
2: yeah i i feel like i feel like it's in there to show how terrible senna is but what's terrible isn't supposed to be how she's treating the man i don't think it's supposed to be how she's treating jalil and like there does seem to be this divide between like you know normal people who are okay and homeless people who are just like, to- like you said, Gray, just like totally dehumanized. And the idea she's scaring Jaleel with is you might cross over that line. And that is what I feel like they haven't examined in themselves mm-hmm. as like, oh, no, those people are still people. Their lives are not empty wastelands. This is a completely cliche caricature of a homeless person. This is not what homelessness is. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Exactly. And there's, there's a line earlier in the books. I don't remember which one where wasn't it something like it was probably, they probably said craziness, but mental illness is the limit of friendship or something like that. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Where like, as soon as you have a mental illness, your friends will abandon you and you will be left alone and worthless. And that's comes through very clearly. And it actually reminds me a little bit of the, you know, the first book in the Animorphs. There's a homeless man who is killed. He's the first yeah. victim that we see. And it's never commented on. It's never commented on because these people don't seem... Because Apple Grant seems to think that, that homeless populations don't have worth. And I just think, as Jenny said, I think it's just an unexamined blind spot. You know, I I don't think Apple Grant are like, you know, terrible people for having this view. And I think it's a, it's an unexamined blind spot for a lot of our society that we, we have that divide and are unwilling to examine, unwilling to examine that divide too closely because we're scared of what we might see yeah. and and how close so many people are to, to homelessness and to being, you know, to being unhoused, to not getting the treatment that they need for various illnesses. And, you know, to, in today's world, it's the addiction, addictiveness of opiates that we've seen and, and how that's tied to mental illness and to unhoused populations. And there are all these things that that go into our society that we are afraid of looking at too closely. And it's surprising when you see it in a young adult book in this way.
2: I feel like Apple Grant, their their treatment of of homeless people, the mentally ill, like, feels a little bit, I mean, connected, of course, but a little bit separate from Sana's Fear of what might happen to her if she told people about the magic thing. Mm. I feel like they do seem to recognize the way that our medical system often fails those with mental illness or in this case, perception of magic that I guess would not be mentally ill because she's seeing real things. Um, <laughs> but like her fear of like, I, is that I think that's when she talks about like the dark magic of science or whatever, that like she would be misdiagnosed, she would be treated really poorly, like that is that is probably accurate like i think that oftentimes especially 20 years ago um still today like our medical system does not do a great job of correctly diagnosing people with mental illness and especially when those people are any type of marginalized population they don't really get into that but like that 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 felt like more like what they were getting at with the, Mm. the dark magic of science bit so but it is funny that they can recognize the way in which the system can mistreat people with mental illness but they don't seem to have developed a more nuanced view of what that mental illness can look like or how it can interact with people's humanity
0: so et cetera. yeah i i i agree I, that was so well said and i think it's it's making me think of a couple of other things that are like a feel a little more speculative but are like connections that i want to try to make so one is this kind of like the divide that you describe between like people and like it, not people or like someone who's like too far gone it strikes me that the way that they talk about keith who was portray- portrayed in previous books as like a white supremacist is here like not retconned but like taken to the like oh what's bad about keith is that he's so uniquely quote-unquote crazy and not his ideology, which is very powerful and is a threat to Jaleel, whether or not Keith is like an individual quote-unquote crazy person. It rem- it makes me think that, again, in the in the 90s or early 2000s, it was like, oh, well, you know, like, people disagree in politics or whatever, but like, at least we're not Nazis, ha ha ha. Right? <laughs> like, those people, like, we can laugh that off because that's such a mm. relic of the past. It seems like the same kind of dismissive attitude. And the other thing that The other connection I want to try to make is one of the things that Senna says that is so, so messed up. She thinks about being a witch and she says, in another time I would have been persecuted, but at least I wouldn't have been bored. Which, it's like the most, like, Gen Z or maybe (laughs) old millennial kind of, like... Oh, you know, everyone's got it made, and it's just like our boring desk jobs keeping us down, man. Do you mean Gen X? What did I say? Gen Z. Shoot, <laughs> I was thinking Gen X. Oh no, I was okay. going to
3: ask for the same thing.
0: <laughs> I don't know if you'll be able to edit this in. That's
2: fine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wait, okay. Can you just edit in? Can you just edit in me saying X? like that you just put it in I'm sure it'll fit perfectly oh Oh, no yeah but like this Gen X thing of like oh yeah oh no one everyone has it so easy because it's the year 2000 and we all have the email and you know like there's no problems in the world like oh sure there's like poverty or whatever but who cares right like
2: war is over and
0: blah 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 right like it. I don't know it was also
2: very like spoiled rich kid Like very much teenager who, I mean, all of her problems are emotional. Right. Yeah. Right. I guess what I'm saying,
0: uh, I'm speaking from my privilege. It's a very white middle class view of the world in the 90s. That's the point I'm trying to make. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I would love to talk about women. Oh, yes, please.
3: (laughs) That's my uh, one of my other big rants.
2: Yeah. What were
0: you going to say? I was going to say any women in particular.
2: (laughs) Just talk about some women we like. You know, there are a lot of good women out there. Not in this book, but... (laughs) Not really. Not so much. Um, So, Senna, first of all, super misogynistic. She's constantly thinking of April as that cow. She is very possessive of David and is like, oh, that bitch Athena took him away from me. Like, very much like...
0: Mad beast it's, hell.
2: Yeah, it's this... Yeah, it's this portrayal of all women as rivals to her. And it's just this very gendered... Sort of the way she was constructed from the beginning as mm-hmm. this ice queen who has to be, like, the only, like, woman atop this, like, throne of, like, subjugated men. And it's this, like, sort of horror vision that, like men have of what women could be and like so there's a thing early on where she's talking about david she's like i had chosen well with him he was a victim of his own male insecurities a prisoner of every honor duty sacrifice masculine myth very useful so okay a couple things to borrow a gray expression on the one hand toxic masculinity hurts us all that that is very true as um, I think Meg has cited, was it Pop Culture Detective? I, talks about like I was yeah. literally
1: going to bring him <laughs> up again. I know I've brought him up twice in this podcast already, but Pop Culture Detective has a lot of fantastic videos about how toxic masculinity tropes in media hurts men and boys. And the stuff with Christopher and Pretty Little Flower, I once again want to especially plug his two-part video on the sexual assault of men played for laughs.
2: So yes, it definitely, like, men can be victims of, like, male power fantasies. The way that this is spinning it as, like, male power fantasies are really just a way to put men under women's power. Like, really, toxic masculinity actually helps women. Like, no, it is still very bad for women that men think they have all this power over them. Toxic masculinity hurts men. It hurts women more. And, like, this spinning this as, like... It actually has given all this power to this, like, she-witch. is like, it's such a misogynistic fear vision of what women could be. And the same with, like, the Amazons, really. Grey, you want to say some stuff about the Amazons? I want to say some stuff about the
3: Amazons. Hello, my name is Grey, and I like Greek mythology. And one thing that comes up in Greek mythology, uh, and, and sort of, Greek writing through the ages is the myth of the Amazons. The first time that they are they come up is actually in Homer. They appear in the Iliad um, and fight on the side of the Trojans, briefly, very briefly. And, and then they kind of get, you know, there's, there's bits throughout the extant Greek literature we have about the Amazons. And they are within a tradition that we see in kind of most cultures of an other society outside of our borders that is the opposite of ours. And so for most cultures, that means that there's this like mythical matriarchal, like women have all the power of society, and they are, you know, mostly kind of almost boogeymen. Like they are, they're seen as like a, oh no, that wouldn't that be terrible to have the women in charge. Having said that, one of the things about the Amazons is that they are equal to men, that's actually the first word that's used to describe them in in Homer. He uses a word that means basically like as good as men. It could also mean against men. It's the same preposition in Greek. So it's either like equal to or like in in opposition to, but that's the, the word that's used. So generally they are portrayed in a variety of places as warriors. One thing that I found is really cool. I I didn't actually know this, but when I went to look them up, because I'm making sure I was not, you know, lying to you guys, which I never want to do. There was a very cool article um, in the Smithsonian Magazine, uh, actually a little, maybe a few years ago, where they were looking into the myth of the Amazons. And it started as a, it starts as like a, I love Wonder Woman. Like, you know, let me tell you about Wonder Woman and her, the Amazons live there. But it ends with, like, here's some information about what we know about the Amazons as a myth. And then ends with, in the early 1990s, I didn't know about this, a joint US Russian team of archaeologists made an extraordinary discovery while excavating 2,000 year old burial mounds known as kurgans uh, near, like, the sort of Russian outpost near the Kazakhstan border, the Ural steppes. They found over 150 graves. And among them were warrior women, buried with their weapons, bow-legged from constant riding. They have iron daggers, quivers, and bows. One of them still had a bent arrowhead embedded in her. They were also, on average, preternaturally tall for their time—five foot six inches. And so there's this sort of idea that there was actually a culture where they had these, these warrior women.
2: I think all of that is cool. How sure are they? Aren't they not very good at identifying male versus female skeletons?
1: Uh, According to the television show Bones, (laughs) you can identify the gender of a skeleton just from a protruding mandible in a slab of concrete. (laughs) I'm sure professional archaeologists can 100% always tell.
2: I don't know too much about this. I remember seeing something that's like, actually, we are very good at telling, but I don't, I'm not sure.
1: I think it depends because
3: I know one of the reasons that that comes up sometimes is that um, it's actually, I think Meg brought this up in one of the earlier um, Everworld books that uh, there's a a very famous Viking skeleton that was just Mm -hmm. assumed to be male because the skeleton was buried with weapons. And then later someone looked at it and was like, hey, hey, guys, it's it's a girl. The girl with the weapons, <laughs> so the girls must have been fighting too. But there was sort of an assumption that the weapons were equivalent to the gender mm-hmm. and not necessarily the skeleton. So I think part of it is like examining our own unconscious biases in various fields, including archaeology. But I, I don't have any additional information about that. I've only ever dug up powder the okay. shards. So, okay. So the Amazons as a myth, very cool. The Amazons in this book, not cool. Because what this book seems to be saying is, if you give women any sort of power, they will just turn into the worst version of men. By which we mean killing people for fun, raping people for fun, groping people for fun, assaulting people for fun, being just real jackasses all the time. And the assumption here of like, yeah, if you let women have weapons, they're just going to turn into bad people. So maybe don't do that. Like it was just, it was the most misogynistic bullshit I have, I have read in a very long time. Like they're like spitting on people. And like, at one point, one of them actually like grabs someone's testicles. Like it's unbelievably weird that this is the decision that they made. Because usually one of the reasons that you have a culture of women is to show a different version of what happens with power. I am not at all saying, please let me be clear, that women becoming warriors and being given power would be markedly different from men. I I I don't think that there is, this is like a gendered thing. It's not like, give women spears and all of a sudden there will be peace. Not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, it is deeply bizarre to me that they're like, give women spears and what you get is, they're just men. That's just, it's the worst instincts of men, but they're women, which makes it worse. And then it just, it was such a f***ing weird way to portray the Amazons in what otherwise might have been pretty cool. Like, they showed up, they're nomadic. We were pretty sure that the Scythians were like nomadic, you know, warrior women. That's awesome. They're going from place to place. They're learning, s***. they're changing, they're being real humans. Like, that is very cool stuff. And then instead, what you do with that is they're terrible. Why? Such a wasted opportunity, I thought.
1: I feel they made this decision to balance out, like, a one-to-one ratio of what they did with the Vikings at the beginning. (laughs) That, like, Vikings equal Amazons, where the Vikings are men and like this, and the Amazons are women and like this. Huh. That I didn't, besides the names, I didn't see any behavioral differences between... You know, the Vikings loved the modern, quote, modern-day songs yeah. that we brought in. And the Amazons loved the modern-day songs that Senna's mom brought mm. in. And they are all about conquering and, you know, going up against all of these other
2: cultures.
1: And, mm.
2: yeah. Except that the Vikings had women who they loved and brought along with them. And married and had kids with and stuff. And didn't murder And the Amazons apparently, are as Ted pointed out, (laughs) Senna said this, we never got any actual evidence that, I mean, I guess there was that dead body that the cats were eating. We don't know that they're baby killers, but like, it's at least purported in the text and never contradicted that they kill boy babies born to them, and they will kill their lovers once they've gotten pregnant by them, especially if they impregnate them with boys. Like, that put women in charge and they'll just destroy all men as opposed to the men who maybe aren't great to women, but.
1: Hashtag not all men. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Good application of that.
1: Yeah. It was that I was disappointed as well, great, in how the Amazons were portrayed.
2: What the heck was going on with Pretty Little Flower? That's Why is she called Pretty Little Flower? Is that just like a weird, like trying to be. Like, All right. orientalist? It's because like, it's racist. That's it's, what it yeah. is. It's
3: racist. <laughs> that's, that's what it... She's She is beautiful and, honest to God, they say exotic, which is like, I hate you. It, she's supposed to be... The, the, the narrative explains to us that they can't know sort of where she comes from in the the sort of Asian continent. And so they guess... Perhaps Chinese, perhaps Japanese, maybe Korean, but with a mix of African and Caucasian thrown in for good measure. F***
2: you. First of all, how, how on earth could you tell that?
3: What are you talking about? Also, then also has blue eyes, skin the color of a lion's mane, hair that was straight full and jet black. And then they called the... So she's some sort of like, you know, from from Asia somewhere. And so what they went, did with that is that they called her Pretty Little Flower. And I was like, f*** you racist. What is so this, I the flower you. drum
2: song? like
1: Just... Everworld's next top model.
0: I won't defend <gasps> this decision, but I Googled this and I thought it was funny. I was like, please, please, Apple Grant, let this be a reference to something. I can confirm that there is a metal band formed in Texas in 1999 called Pretty Little Flower.
2: <laughs> why, why would they be referencing that? <laughs>
0: I hope They've rebranded to they PLF are. since. <laughs> uh, no, it's terrible. Well, my other thought, as soon as I saw her, was like, "What? What are the odds that we're going to get any kind of like East Asian mythology represented in these books at all?" It's pathetic. Do you really
2: want to see them try to do East Asian though?
0: Well, no. I, no especially I, not I after am. what they did with the Egyptian gods, because yeah. like I actually do really like on a plot level the dynamic of the Egyptian gods have gone to sleep because of all this ritual stuff, and that's mm-hmm, kind of like mm-hmm. horrifying in a neat way. And then the Amazons as this nomadic incursion. Like, that's that's fun world-building stuff. But I actually think, like, this whole idea of, like, the Egyptian gods are fluid. More fluid than, like, Western gods. Like, mm. it's it's built on these really...
2: Wait, weren't they also more rigid? How is this? What? The,
3: the rituals are more rigid. What they say... I quoted this whole paragraph in my notes, so I'm going to read it to you. The Egyptian gods were mm-hmm. not the Greeks. The Greeks wrote stories with a Western sensibility. They could be odd, but the Greek myths could be understood in linear fashion, A to B to C. The Egyptians were less direct. Each god had a dozen faces, a dozen forms, a dozen attributes, often weirdly mismatched. Or at least, that was the story deciphered from a millennium's worth of hieroglyphics. A COUPLE things? Oh, one it was more than There are 4,000 years of Egyptian history, <laughs> culture, and mythology that incorporates a number of different actual land areas. So yeah, it changes because sometimes there's an upper and a lower, and sometimes there isn't. It's a completely different country that we in our Western <laughs> sensibilities have gr- grouped together as like that one area in Africa that we know anything about. So we're just going to call it Egypt, first of all. And second of all... I'm sorry. The Greeks wrote stories with a Western sensibility. Okay. Where do you think the Western sensibility came from?
1: If you had to guess. It was they discovered by right. uh, Campbell for the hero's journey. The, that is where it came the, from.
3: The Greeks wrote the Greeks. Were the origin of most of our Western sensibilities. <laughs> if our origin story had been Egypt, we would be like, look at these weird ass Greeks with their linear stories, what the hell is up with that? Why don't they have gods that adjust over time to, you know, for our culture? And also, just as a side note, the Greeks were around as a cultural force in the Mediterranean for like a thousand years, right? Homer is 800 BCE. And then we go to, you know, sometime in the first century where they're like really a big force in our cultural history, right? So first of all, that is a quarter of the time that the Egyptians, what we're calling the Egyptians, were around, first of all. So, so okay. And then second of all, they f***ing <laughs> do. These stories change. The gods Change, Zeus who appears in Homer in 750 BCE is not the same Zeus that you get in the temple cults in the first century. It's a different god. We same name, the same places, a completely different story. And and we see it as one story because we're looking back 2,000 years later and reading, you know, Dallaire's History of Greek Mythology and seeing one story. But that's not true. And the and if you're gonna talk. like this, I require you to go to your local library and pick up the World Book Encyclopedia and read one goddamn entry about any of these gods. I I
0: know just... but okay, here's the thing. Following the logic presented in this book, right, we have both Zeus and Jupiter occupying the same place. So like, where is our book with a throwdown between the Christian God, the Jewish God, and the Muslim yes. God? Right? Yes That that is like a matter of doctrine that they're not the same, right? Yes. Like, people <laughs> well, who are we're not very alive today <laughs> disagree about this. If I say God, right? Like it's like, yeah. are we referring to the same thing? Right? Mm-hmm. There's already evidence in every world that they are distinct entities. Like the whole idea is ridiculous. Yes,
2: ridiculous. Okay. I also want to jump on this thing where, like, if you worship death, I guess you're eventually gonna become it. Like. What the heck? Okay, as far as I can tell, and I didn't actually do a lot of research for this, so maybe I'm wrong. But like, the Egyptians were trying to avoid death. Like that was the whole thing with the pyramids. They're like, you know, we want to like make sure we're like still alive in the afterlife. We want to not disappear. Um, so they're really kind of worshiping life. And also, like every culture has a god of death. Like the, the Egyptians death didn't happens, hold and then- death as their highest god, did they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like okay. the
3: idea of the idea of gods becoming essentially dying because their the faith is becomes about the ritual and not about the god that is such a cool idea it's explored yeah. in a number of other fantasy and science fiction books my favorite is small gods from terry pratchett where that is like the whole thing right so good but that doesn't really get explored it's like a throw-off comment where they're like oh yeah and that's Isis. But, like, she's pretty much mostly dead and covered in dust because, like, what's happening is they're just chanting a bunch of stuff and no one's actually believing in her. And then we're going to go on with this other nonsense. It was like, but that was the only interesting thing you said for 200
2: pages! <laughs> go back to that! So, okay, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt here, but I'm not going to. I actually don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt, it turns out. I thought they were going to do a lot with the Egyptian pantheon because Egypt has one of, like, the coolest, like mythology collections around and like all of the great set pieces there like Egyptology (laughs) is such like has really captured the imagination of the west Oh, (laughs) very good I liked it very well done so I was like oh obviously they're gonna like Egypt won't be one that they shortchange but then I forgot that they're not white so they did have we seen any robust culture that hasn't been I mean, white is a broad term because, like, I don't know that the Greeks would have considered themselves white. But you know, what we would the consider now—Greeks have now, been claimed by the exactly. White canon. Greeks have been claimed <laughs> by the whites. But like, we went to the Aztecs. We went to Egypt. I, are those the only two? No, oh, the last no. We book had we saw. the weird oh, you're right. I the African mythology
1: book. I again would like to voice my frustration from book one. When were we hanging out with the Vikings? One, I think we're seeing that these cultures are intermarrying and we're seeing that you don't necessarily stay in the mythological space and everworld that you grew up in. They're trading goods. They're marrying into other cultures, but there's no cultural exchange at all. Like we're not getting, like you mentioned with Pretty Little Flower that no, she's 100% in Amazon all the way. And even though she's still named my turn to do heavily air quotes, named for her original culture, she's not bringing any of her mythology with her. It's almost like there's this unwritten rule that when you marry into the Vikings, you must deny all of your previous gods and mythology and solely worship the Norse gods from like then on out. And I feel that now that we know that gods can be killed from a lack of faith or a lack of belief, don't you think the gods should be like way more invested in actually having more followers to worship them.
0: Yeah.
2: Maybe they should take better care of their people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or why isn't Ka'inor eating these
3: ones? No. Oh. They're stale. Yeah, they're not. And there's thousands of them.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. So that's actually a really good point. I think this is another weird... This is related, I think, to this whole thing we've been talking about with the religions. But the way Jalil does his, like, cultural analysis of the Egyptian gods versus the Amazons. He it's basically this like I didn't I didn't write down enough of it, but it's like this like American imperialism type like ideology of like, well, you know, these Egyptian gods were too rigid and ritualistic and traditional and the Amazons are the like innovative settlers who will come in and like take over as is their like natural ability to be strong dictates.
3: One culture closes in on itself, inbreeds, tries to achieve stasis, shuts out anything new and foreign. Another culture interbreeds, picks up whatever it can technologically, travels, moves from place to place, grabbing the best and incorporating it into their cultures. I mean, look at how the Amazons have adopted the Aretha religion, or whatever you want to call it. I'm not one to praise any religion, but man, in a straight-up choice between mumbling rituals all day long and singing some decent music while you curl up with a nice glass of wine, dot dot dot. It just... Ted, that's a really good point that this feeds so well into like American imperialism. It's just a weird, I don't know, the way that religion is treated in this book is very odd to me because you do get these sort of, you know, the rituals that have put these gods into stasis. At the beginning of the book, Senna says about April, but one of the things she hates about her is... Uh, it was contempt at first sight. I've never liked her. On her good days, she amused me. On her bad days, I found her self-righteous religiosity, her smug normalcy intolerable. Fine. But then, like, 30 pages later, she talks about how she loves the church. She, mm-hmm. Her happiest hours were at the church because she likes the ritual and the quiet well, yeah. and the expectation of magic. And I was like, I have so many questions about how this book treats religion.
2: gray i have a question for you i want to know what you think about this claim that senna makes that gods are with a few exceptions but not that many always strong wise men and evil deceitful men and beautiful virginal women is that all gods gray hashtag not all gods
3: (laughs) i think if you're going to make sweeping claims like that you just deserve to get what's coming to you It's just so, I uh, 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 I don't get it and I don't like it. I have two more tiny ranty things. One is about the Amazons and one is just a throwaway st- sentence that I got real mad about. Do you want them Oh, I have one of those too. Let's hear yours first. Okay, one is that one of the two named Amazons is named Merope, which is a great name, but it's also the name of one of the Pleiades. Mm -hmm. it's not an amazon name we have amazon names there are a bunch of them that are named i don't know why you didn't pick one of those whatever (laughs) so there's one and then the other one is i just okay in that same bit i think or, or near that same bit about where they're talking about the amazons and like how they uh move around and whatever david says they've conquered an entire nation they're like what's his name The Spanish guy who took down the Old World Incas with 200 men. Couple things. One, the conquistadors and their genocide of people in South America and Central America isn't a throwaway line. You assholes. And two, I understand this is a minor point, say it anyway. Are you talking about Old World Incas. The Incas live in the New World. That's kind of the whole thing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Maybe the idea okay. is that like That's the conquistadors made the old world new by yes they did. the people who lived by, there. by <laughs> wiping out
3: ninety percent of the people who once lived in the Americas with their f***ing germs and their pigs like I just mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> with their pigs did they use pigs
3: no uh um one of the one of the things that I think it was Columbus um they had pigs that they had for food and they released them. And um, they bred; they had no natural enemies in the. They, it, this was especially North America, um, so this wouldn't Ooh. have been the, the conquistadors; it would have been like Columbus, I think. But they spread disease and were one of the one of the disease vectors that helped wipe out. We think helped wiped out the indigenous people of North America, and also went completely feral in a way that like people didn't really know how to deal with. So lots I of pigs. About the pigs, yeah. yeah.
0: I I have a um on a different topic, a boner watch update. Ooh, good. Um, Santa gets a magic boner. I felt oh, a physical yeah. pleasure, an intense rush of shuddering sensation, a wave of anger released and hurt avenged. I closed my eyes and let it pass through me, let it linger. The power. I loved it so. It filled me and fulfilled me.
2: Is that a magic boner or a magic orgasm?
0: I well, that's a that's a <laughs> great question. I think it's a magic orgasm, but What do you guys make of the like how sexed up Santa's magic is? Because like when she first introduces it,
2: she's not a sadist, so I think we have to take her at her word, right?
0: (laughs) To me, it's a bizarre it's a bizarre choice to be like the main defining. It's almost like the addiction thing you were talking about. It's like the magic in Everworld is just like so good. Mm. It's better than sex. (laughs) Yeah,
3: and she can feel it like in the Nile. You know, she can she can tell when
1: the magic is. Changing. Listen, as someone who's lived in Florida, when they... Listen, they know about Egypt and stuff, right? When they just, like, walk into this shallow water, I'm like, aren't you worried about... <laughs> and then the crocodiles show up, and I'm like, there it is. <laughs> also, those poor crocodiles, listen,
3: yeah. they are just doing what they're told the to do. The crocodiles
2: did nothing wrong. The
3: crocodiles
1: did nothing wrong, and the fucking hats show up and cut their jaws off. The poor babies... Yeah. I actually really enjoyed, and I know this is a little off topic from anything, but we're talking about the crocodiles. I enjoyed the visuals of the final fight of this oh. book. I think this is the first mm-hmm. really interesting battle sequence. Like we had some cool stuff with the Mjolnir versus the Aztec god, Huitzilopochtli, But I just really was like, I would like to see this Egyptian city overrun by magic crocodiles and then like all the stuff with Merlin in it and then I don't know just visually this was the most cool interesting battle we've had yeah. so far.
0: And the 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 tactical ingenuity of Senna beating Merlin was mm. so satisfying. Mm. It was like like the you described it in the summary, Jenny, but like she basically she can't win on the power basis, but she knows from her own experience that Merlin can only you know, multitask across so many spells at once. So here comes Christopher, like an easy patsy. And like, just the idea that she's like, you know, Christopher, I order you to kill my mother. And Merlin's like, oh no, she's whammied Christopher. I gotta (laughs) stop him. And then she does the same thing where like, she makes the Amazons think that Merlin has attacked PLF. Yeah. And so they shoot all the arrows at Merlin and Merlin has to freeze the arrows and that gives Senna just enough time to run away. So good.
1: Like we'd set up multiple pieces, and then we used all those pieces for a satisfying resolution in our conflict, which is, sidebar, something I feel that WandaVision really failed to do, and it's been a month (laughs) since it finished, and I'm still disappointed. All right, back to Everworld.
0: I gotta say, also, the, like, Keith as a plot element is great. Oh, yeah, Mm -hmm. I absolutely love... Sena wants to invade Everworld with like tanks and nukes and stuff. I think that's awesome. I think that plays to Applegrad's strengths. It invites the question to me though: Why are there aliens? Like, <laughs> why couldn't we have just had Everworld versus yeah. human world? Yeah. Why do we need aliens at all? It's really My weird. My constant I
3: don't... question for nine books now. <laughs> the aliens didn't barely show up. Why didn't the Kuhat show up in the in the big cool fight scene at the
2: end?
0: Mm. Right.
2: Yeah. We just left them behind conveniently
0: <laughs> because like, the Nile is mom. too fast. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they were stuck in denial.
1: Oh, also the the scene where they're sailing past the completely destroyed dwarven settlement was mm. that was a good emotional moment. I thought. Are they ever going to go to the mountains? Is this actually going to be a problem later in the books? I don't know. I don't know. There are only three books left. <laughs> but happens. okay. So, what real world cultures or mythologies would you replace? The Ku Hatch and the Hetwan and Kaanor with
0: oh we ha- we already had this theory before Ka-Anor is um, the Christian Oh, yeah
1: God. as viewed like, by maybe, the Crusaders. maybe Crusader errand but
0: like the you know there wants can- to
2: destroy all the others yeah, other yeah gods. So
0: there can be only one God and so right? yeah. like, that's, yeah. that's, that's therefore the be the
2: Crusaders God. no that's a great conflict because that's just a God like some gods are fine with the other pantheons mm-hmm. that God is not
1: and then who would the Ku Hatch be if they were not aliens I think the Ku Hatch should have been the Amazons.
2: Oh. Interesting. Who were yeah, focused on. like a on, nomadic group yeah. without maybe gods. Who knows? And they are
1: focused on weaponry. And they are, since they don't worship a god, like they're culturally trapped in Everworld, but maybe they're not being held in stasis by their belief in a single god. And they do like maybe even recruit people from other cultures that they in these, millennia centuries i don't know how long we've been in everworld have been developing new steel techniques and all this sort of stuff
0: Mm -hmm. no that invites the question why don't the vikings want to go home right like you almost don't need gods in the kuhatch position Mm -hmm. but like there have been these normal people and their descendants trapped in everworld for a thousand years Mm -hmm. so like it seems pretty reasonable that they would like you know run like that village that that Jaleel was all the terrible incest about village? in his first book, the incest village. Yes. Like, why weren't people in that village like, "Oh my god, you guys we can take us home. back to Earth"? All we want to do is go back to Earth and live our live our lives there. Like that would also be a super compelling mm-hmm. story.
2: So one of the lines that really stood out to me, maybe more for, like, my personal coming to understand, like, fantasy stories and what is interesting and important. Sana has this line where she's like, yeah, there's all these politics in Everworld, but it's actually interesting. No one argues about tax rates. They argue about survival rates. And I was like, no, those are the same thing. Yeah, Like,
0: tax yeah. rates exist
2: the tension of tax rates are like individual survival versus how well can a country support you? How well can a country defend you against other or a country or like a God or whatever, like that could be a huge element and like, should be a huge element of like a fantasy story. It's like those levers of like power and resources and how you shepherd those that will determine who wins. Like taxes are not like boring. Nothings you 17 year old rich girl. Senna very clearly
1: has a limited grasp on what power means. And she thinks that... She's
2: going to be a very bad ruler. Yeah,
1: she thinks that power means I am physically slash magically stronger than everyone else. And everyone will simply do what I say if I am the strongest. Mm -hmm. And... I feel that they're maybe setting up our main characters
2: to be like, no, the power of friendship is the strongest power of all. <laughs> Should have had them be friends then. <laughs> Ted, I want to go back to your thing. You were asking what we make of the sexualization of Senna's power. It's funny. I think that, like, the book sort of calls out April's mom's thing where, like, she gave me this warning, like, I might want to give in to the boys, like... Oh yeah, uh, you know requests of me or whatever, and like she didn't give the same warning to April because like there is this Madonna horror division among these two girls, and like the book seems to be aware of that in some way, and yet it still views her this like sexuality as a source for evil, or like is tied up with this evil magic. Like it hasn't really examined its own suppositions yeah, I there, think that's
0: right.
2: especially because April is the one who's like a virgin and like has made a point of that and like the book is not really complicating that divide even if it's pointing out that april's mom like helped create it
0: Mm. yeah support for my theory that april and jaleel are gonna bang she claims him (laughs) as her own to the amazons
2: i yeah i i think that the casualness which with which christopher's demanded physical service was treated was not okay would definitely not have been treated that way if he were a woman Mm -hmm. But I did love that moment where April's like, no, I'm going to claim this person who's been nice to me and not a total jackass this entire time we've been in this world.
3: Also, Christopher didn't want to be chosen because he was on board with that because of toxic masculinity. Wait, what? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Let me let me go find that page. She jerked her thumb at Christopher. Yours? Christopher shook his head at April. No. April said, Oh,
2: I missed that. So,
3: like, there is some consent here. So I think it's not, not as, consenting. like, yeah. yeah,
2: but it's still creepy.
0: There's actually, yeah. it's it's super creepy, and it is a double standard. It is interesting, the sort of, like, like, they play it for laughs. The, like, he's my cuddle lamb, and she's, like, or Christopher's, like, we didn't actually do it. She just wanted to, like, talk. It's yeah. actually kind of, like, a, a modern understanding of what sex work could be. But oh. captured, in a, <laughs> captured in a really stupid double standard 90s joke. Okay,
1: I have a question. So we've had a lot of obsession with is April a virgin or not? It took several books before we actually found out. Has, and this is a trope, so I this is why I'm wondering, has Christopher actually had sex himself or is he talking a big game pretending that he's not a virgin?
2: I don't know I mean it seems it seemed like Senna and David maybe had sex so I mean maybe she and Christopher also had sex I don't I don't know that we know though
1: I know I was just I was wondering if it had been like stated in the book or if he's just acting I don't
2: think we know
0: wasn't there some joke about how like one of the gods cared whether they were virgins or not and like April and Jaleel were the oh, ones who felt uncomfortable. that's right. And David and Christopher were like, haha. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. Me
2: neither. It's like, it would totally not be surprising if any of these kids have like not had sex at 17. Like that's pretty common.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I didn't notice any horrible injuries this book. <laughs> uh, usually our kids get a horrible injury pretty early on in Act 1, and then it's never mentioned again. I mean, we do have Senna's crocodile scrapes and stuff, but she does mention them as the story keeps going, so it seems like she kept her little crocodile teeth punctures. In the
0: context of, like, tearing open a scab and dribbling blood into Christopher's wine, which is one of the most horrifying (laughs) things that's ever (laughs) happened.
2: Really gross. Did not enjoy.
0: All right, what else do we have to say about this book?
2: I had some oddies moments. Bring them on. Yeah, one of which we already referenced, which was Michelle Kwan meets Tyra Banks, because apparently uh, you can just substitute people of like one race for each other. So if she's a mix of like African and Asian. That means she's Michelle Kwan meets Tyra Banks. Sure, there's only one in each. Uh, there's
3: also a Drew Carey show
2: reference. Yeah, I had to look that up because I never watched that show. But Mimi does have quite exaggerated makeup, perhaps like they were seeing on the Sphinx. And Heidi Klum was referenced as well.
3: There's also a surprising number of. Sixties references in this book, <laughs> as per usual. Fey Ray once again comes up.
2: Oh, right, right.
0: I do. Faye my last Ray. note in the book is Faye Ray in all caps. <laughs>
2: Amazing. I am now convinced that the reason that I have such an awareness of who Fey Ray is <laughs> is because I read these books yes. when I was a kid. Because <laughs> I was okay. like, oh yeah, everyone knows that. It's because of these books. And if, I mean, at least there's like a plot reason for all of the like sixties music and stuff. Yeah.
0: All right. So, I think the last thing that I want to say about this book is like I really do think this is probably the best book that we've had so far. I also think that it has done a lot to salvage the plot, but like there's still no like theme that I can pull out of like what is happening here that is like interesting. Right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a lot of deep thematic material that like they do not successfully tie together in like any way. But, I don't know. It could be interesting to see what happens.
2: Meg, you think Sana is uh going to fall victim of her own machinations? Yeah. I mean I kinda don't want her to get a happily
1: ever after. To be like, oh I was like, wrong. What would it and even there's be? there's more to life than magic and maybe maybe she'll even give up her magic to save David because she realizes something. Mm-mm. But no, <laughs> that's that's not likely.
0: Do you think she's gonna get the like she goes totally mad like hell and then is cut down or do you think she's gonna get the like merlin puts her in a box forever ending or Or she
2: loses her magic and goes back to the real world right
0: like what kind of ending are we gonna get for her
2: a
1: little bit about the box forever
2: ending i think
1: she's going to get to rule all of everworld but all of Everworld is going to be taken away. So she's going to be queen of her own empty dimension that she'll never be able to get out of.
2: Oh, that would be cool. It's very poetic. I like that. I think it's more likely she'll lose her powers. Like Merlin will take them from her or something. And she'll be sent back to our world really bitter and resentful. And like, hmm. it's just unclear what will happen to her there. She'll have to struggle to make a life somehow. But she'll hate it. All right. I have a sense that a lot of the problems that Senna has are
3: problems that she causes herself. So, for Mm -hmm. example, at the end of this, in that last battle scene, she brings Keith and his arsenal (laughs) into Everworld. And then she's like, oh, no, this is a terrible decision. She has to run away from him. So I think there will be some sort of poetic justice or, like, karma where one of her big plots will backfire and she will be caught Mm. in that.
0: So what I'm wondering is, like, will... I'm pretty ambivalent about whether I think we're going to get, like, resolution. Like, they're going to be like, this, okay, now we're making it an ending. Like, I, I doubt they planned for it to be exactly 12 books, but like, like, and maybe at this point in the series, they're like, okay, we're going to wrap this up in three books. Or whether it's going to be a lot more of like a, like, are they going to try and hit a major point in all of the plots they've teed up in mm. the next three books? Or is it going to be like, we'll resolve like, the Greeks versus the Hetwan but that's all we get. Right? Like, like yeah. I'm not sure.
2: I think we're going to get Ka'anor. Ka'anor is going to fall. And the kids mm-hmm. will get home. Those are my predictions.
0: And then Senna's fate is in the in the balance. The, Senna gets sent home without her I think her she's going
2: to get sent home without her powers. I want to throw out another wild prediction.
1: I think one of our main four is going to be killed in Everworld. Ooh, is it Christopher? I hope so. But we'll lose all of their Everworld memories. <gasps>
2: Ooh so their, their real world self will still be alive but won't remember anything that happened yeah. in Everworld. I love that.
1: I think if I had to make a choice between this happening, it would be David because he's like our main character and our other characters will have to do a last valiant heroic effort to try and get their leader back. They're going to need him back for the final battle. <laughs> I, I don't think that will happen but that's that's what
2: I would do. <laughs> No, I think it's going to be a tragedy where like Christopher will have like learned and grown um, in Everworld, yeah. but then he'll lose <laughs> all those memories and he'll just be a total ass in the real world. And they'll like try, you know, we'll have some interaction where the, he won't know, he won't really know them. Um, and he'll just show how much of a bigot he still is and how he didn't actually retain any of the slight progress he had made. Yeah,
0: I, I'm trying to, I think there might be like a goosebumps ending where like they think they're back home safe. And then they go to sleep and they wake up in Everworld again. I think that might happen. I'm trying to decide, like, I think the interesting thing is, like, there's now a threat both ways. Tanks come to Everworld or Loki comes to the real world. Mm -hmm. Right. Or Senna
2: said something about, like, then Ka'anor will want to come to the real world. And I was like, I don't think so. There aren't any gods for him to eat there. There aren't any gods here. Like, why? Like... I think that was just complete, like, continuity error. I don't think that was ever his intention. Or it has never been speculated that that's his intention. The idea is that Loki would want to come to the real world with the other gods.
0: I feel like the more interesting conflict would be, like, the kids are just trying to get home. And, like, do they end up caring about... Everworld. The bigger picture in any way. Mm -hmm. Like, does David... Because, like, April we know will want to go home. But, like, David is, like, finding himself here. So, like, maybe we get Meg's thing where they split... Like, some people stay and some people go. Like, I don't
1: know. Do you remember how the Animorphs got home from the land of the dinosaurs by setting off a nuclear explosion that killed the sentient civilization yes. back then? What if the only way for all of us to get home is to literally blow up Everworld and destroy everyone there? And, oh, my gosh, can we make this moral choice? Even though, like, we secretly
2: hate oh, Everworld
0: yeah, gonna all nuke the time. Or, and then they're going to nuke Everworld.
2: Things. I mean, that would solve some problems. Do you think they'll just decide, like, maybe this will kill us permanently, but it's worth the risk to destroy all these terrible gods? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Sure.
0: (laughs) Still feels like this is an optimistic amount of resolution we're asking for.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, we need to look at the next book. Hang on. It's number
1: 10. A significant number in the Stormlight Archives and the Way of Kings, if you
2: listen to mine and Emily's podcast about it. (laughs) Okay, we've got book 10. Everworld understand the unknown. The cover is this blue guy with bangs. and it's Dr.
0: Manhattan with there's bangs. There's
2: fish swimming by him. Oh, are there fish? Yeah, look, there are fish oh, and like sharks and stuff. Amazing. So like, maybe it's, is that like a woman with a ponytail? No, he looks like one of those Greek statues with the curly hair and stuff.
3: Yeah, he looks like Hadrian, but it's going to be like oh. uh,
2: Poseidon. Poseidon. There's also, there's no inside cover. They've cut down on the budget here. And it's like not actually, it's just like a silver print. Like it's not like raised. silver leaf oh, the no. way sometimes they are. That's interesting. The series so. Is this going to be
0: Poseidon or is it going to be Atlantis?
2: <gasps> oh, I hope it's Atlantis.
1: Okay. It's not going to be Atlantis. I would like that I too much. want Poseidon and Atlantis to have joined forces because finally somebody's going to realize we're stronger together than we are alone.
0: Right. No. This is going to be the equivalent of the Hell Book. It's going to be that was Underworld, but all pantheons, sort of, and this is going to be Ocean Gods.
2: Under the sea. You guys, this is ghost written. What? The I mean, I'm assuming the author wishes to thank Elise Smith for her help in preparing this manuscript. Like that no. means it's ghost written, right? No. Right. Apple Grant, honest to God, what, what are, are you doing? With, why
3: are you not making? If you're gonna do that, you might as well make animorphs better.
2: I know! You could have just never written this series and everything in the world would have been so much better. Man. Okay, well, fine.
0: Elise yeah. Smith. Can you guess which book she wrote in the Animorph series? Was
2: it 36?
0: <laughs> no. Oh,
2: okay. Ooh. ooh, okay, okay, ooh.
0: She wrote three of them.
2: Three of them? But one
0: in particular. The
3: Helicron, Helmicron's the Helmicron's book. No, the Crocodile one.
0: No.
2: No, there was no ghostwriter for the Crocodile one. That was too early. Sorry, that sounded scornful. I just
0: <laughs> this one is probably giving too much away. It's not a good thing.
2: Um, is it thirty seven? Thirty seven. No, thirty seven is the worst. It's the one where um, Rachel is the leader, like tries to become the leader. It's the cheetah one with the it's like the worst. Oh, one. oh. Okay. it's the one that we rewrote the fake book for Gray oh, instead. Yeah.
0: Wait, uh, she one? also wrote thirty and forty six. So forty six is the. Oh, right, right, thirty book is okay. Thirty is
2: fine. Yeah.
0: The fighter jet. <laughs> right. Thirty is pretty good.
2: Thirty seven is the abomination. <laughs> it's it's so
3: bad. It's the worst one out of. I can't oh. find out
0: if the if there are any other ghost written ones in Everworld. I, I've been googling, but I just was reminded.
2: I can't believe they gave her work after that. Were they okay with 37? I well, we don't know
0: if it was after.
2: But they gave her 40, whatever oh, it was. 46, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was already surprised at that. But honestly, 46 and 30 are, are totally fine. It's it's just 37. I don't remember those.
0: Oh no. Well, okay, so Jenny and I have been talking about this. I wanna end up, we were saying our listeners were like, it really takes a dive in the, the second half of the series. <laughs> however, we've actually liked the last three books, seven, eight, and in nine more than average. Yeah. So what I'm wondering if this is like the sort of recency effect where like maybe the last three books are absolute stinkers and that just tarnishes the whole, quote, <laughs> second half. So I'm wondering if this is the peak and we're about to be. Yeah, because
2: uh, this was the best book so far, I think, um, despite its flaws. Yeah. I, I really liked the way I'm it tied excited. into a larger plot and had an interesting narrator.
0: Uh I'm perversely excited to read this next one. Atlantis, yes. ghostwritten by Notorious Animorphs, ghostwriter. <laughs> it's perfect.
2: All right. Well, that's next time. Understand the Unknown. I'm looking forward to understanding it. I feel like we don't yet. So into the unknown. <laughs> Thanks, Meg. That's going to be in
3: my head forever. Cool.
2: If you want to find us, we are at anamorphology.com and at Animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on
3: Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends.
1: I was going to say, I see a new crossover musical called The Unsinkable Molly Brown. It's a it's a musical about the Titanic, but it's all NSYNC cover songs. Bye,
2: bye, bye. <laughs>